right. Well, thank you, Wendy, uh, for that prayer. And uh, my name is Kevin Boyle, and I'm the director of student ministries here, which means I primarily hang out with 12 to 18-year-olds. And just the awesome privilege that that is. Uh, it's challenging at times, but it, for the most part, it's a, a privilege. Uh, but I'm super excited to be able to come up here and just uh, share God's word with you. And um, just as I've been preparing for this and praying for it and just excited for, I believe, what God's going to do and how he's going to move. Um, one thing, I do not have a doctorate degree in ministry, so I get notes, unlike Paul, um, and so I do have my iPad here. But um, So we're going to dive in. We have a lot of ground to cover, um, and so we're going to, we're opening up to 1 John uh, chapter 5, starting in verse 6, which is on page uh, 1023 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Um, and so starting in verse 6, it says this. This is the one who came by the water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe in the... uh, believe God has made about him out to be a liar, because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has made, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So you might be sitting there going like, oh my gosh, Uh, there's a lot in there, and it's kind of overwhelming. And so uh, my hope is that I can kind of clear out some of the clutter I, uh, unlike what I did a couple weeks ago where I tried to clear out the clutter of our lilac bushes with just taking a chainsaw and just going to town, I hope to be a little bit more precise for you today um, and be able to kind of clear up some things. So a couple questions that come to mind for me were, first, what is the water and blood? What is he talking about? And second, what is this, like the three agree in this testimony? And that really kind of confuses me. And so I want to address the latter one first, which is um, understanding that in the culture and the context that John is writing, that two or three witnesses uh, would hold up in court, right? And so that it was considered to be true. And so John's writing to a bunch of people that would understand this. And we get that from Deuteronomy 17, Matthew 18, and also in 2 Corinthians 13:1, where it talks about that I have given you two or three witnesses. And so this was an idea that they were very familiar with. And then the second thing, what does the water and blood represent? Um, Pastor Paul had talked about it, Neil and Susie have been talking about that John is writing to kind of combat some false teaching that had uh, gone and really invaded the church. And so he's, he's trying to address um, what I believe is a false teaching that Jesus was an ordinary man and that at his baptism that a heavenly spirit descended upon him and then at his death that the heavenly spirit uh, abandoned him and that Jesus just died as an ordinary person. So that was the false, one of the popular false teachings at the time. And so John actually comes in and says, no, 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 that Jesus is the Son of God and that we know this by his baptism because this is a testimony to him. When the heavens opened up and the Heavenly Father said, this is my Son who I am well pleased, that actually testifies to him being the Son of God. And then at his death, where he pours out his blood, and that blood is actually atones for our sin, and it purifies our sin, as he references earlier in the book in 1 John 1.7. And so he's laying out this idea that these two events are actually testimonies to him being the Son of God. And then he takes it a step further and says that if you believe in Jesus, 
that you actually have the spirit that testifies in you. And that is the third testimony uh, which brings about this truth. And so uh, we know that John, later in the uh, Gospel of John, which was written later, but we kind of get insight into his thinking, that he quotes Jesus as saying that a believer will have the spirit and the spirit will be in him. And then Paul actually takes this a little bit further in uh, Romans 8 and says that the spirit will actually bear witness to us. And so that brings me to my first point, which is that we know that we have a salvation that transforms because the Spirit testifies to us. And so if you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if you believe that he died and uh, paid the sins, paid the price for your sin, that the Spirit comes in you and it testifies. It is evidence of your salvation. And so... um, as, as John's kind of laying this out and he's kind of going through, um, he's going to continue to unpack this idea of how we know that we have salvation because there's evidence of this. And so we're going to continue in verses 13 uh, through 21, which says this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. If we know that he hears us, And whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing sin, not leading to death, he will ask, and God will give them him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God, the eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So again, this is a very loaded passage. Uh, It has a lot in it. Uh, And so as we kind of work our way through, but we're going to start back at verse 13, which Uh, It's kind of the crux of the passage where it talks about, I write these things so that you may know um, that you have eternal life. And that John is writing, again, about the false teachers. I'm going to mention that a couple more times to make sure that you're you're tracking with me. And so he wants them to know that they have eternal life because the false teachers were out there saying, you need special knowledge. And that you, to get eternal life, and so you're not, you don't know the full thing. And John, who is an eyewitness to Jesus, who walked with Jesus, comes in and says, no, God has already testified to everything you need to know. And that you, what you know, because he's talking to the believers, is that he is the Son of God, and that you have eternal life, and you have testimony, and you have uh, evidence of this, because the Spirit lives in you and testifies to that. And so... Uh, that we can have confidence in that. And so it leads us into verse 14, which again says this. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And this leads me to my second point. We know we have a salvation that transforms because he hears our prayers and he grants them. There's a very key phrase in here, and it is according to his will. And so with that, that he hears us, that if we pray according to his will, he hears us and he will grant them. So that is very important to remember. Um, I think there's a couple groups here that kind of want to talk to. And the first one may be thinking, uh, I have not ever seen answer to prayer or I've never had a prayer answered. 
Um, and this is convicting to me because I know that I've prayed prayers that I've not seen an answer to, or at least not how I think it was. Uh, it's training camp season, so my typical prayer for the Vikings to win the Super Bowl, right, that has not come to uh, fruition yet. How great would it be that in the U.S. Bank Stadium uh, that for them to win the Super Bowl? Uh, if it gets to that point, I might pray, how great would it be for someone to just magically say, hey, here's the ticket to the Super Bowl game, um, and probably will go on answer as well. But, um, you know, Pastor Paul talked about having boat envy a couple weeks ago, or, or maybe it's praying for a new car, or maybe just a different car, maybe a different car that has a sunroof or uh, has, can fit my entire family, uh, having students who are praying for getting an A on a test, well, I stayed up playing video games all day, but if I pray for an A, that maybe I'll get that. Or maybe it's that this girl will notice me or this guy might notice me. Or maybe it's getting into a specific college that I want to. And the problem with that is those prayers, a lot of times, the focus is, a, is on us. And it's what we want. And as I've dug into what prayer looks like and really have been convicted, that it's less about what we want and it's more about aligning ourselves with Him and aligning ourselves with His will and really praying according to his will and seeking that out. The problem when, when the prayer is on us, or the focus is on us, we start to have expectations. And it's, then that really leads to disappointment. And I'm going to talk about that in a, in a second. But So really, as we learn to pray, and I've actually started to change how I pray about just seeking first his kingdom, seeking first his will, and that has really benefited my prayer life. Um, the second group may be sitting there and be like, hey, Kevin, I get that. But I really sought out the Lord, and I feel like I really, really was seeking His will. And, but for whatever reason, I feel like my prayer has been unanswered, or my prayer, I'm kind of waiting, or just in silence. And so I want to just encourage you a little bit, um, that if you are seeking His will, and are praying according to His will, that you have been heard. Uh, that John makes that extremely clear. Um, and that we can come to Him with faith and confidence, and that it will be granted. However, Mark 11 kind of shares, kind of brings a little clarity into this. And it talks about that if you have unforgiveness or you're harboring bitterness towards another person, that that impacts your relationship with Christ. And that it actually impacts your prayer life. And, um, and so Mark 11 also goes on to say that if you uh, ask it, it will be given to you. And so if you're coming to God with a clean heart, without, without having unforgiveness or harboring bitterness towards someone, that, and you ask according to his will, that it will be granted. A testimony, or I'm sorry, a commentary, put it like this. Uh, Jesus says in Mark 11:24, Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. The present tense we have, and not the future we will have, indicates that God grants our requests immediately. And though his answer may not be immediately revealed, even though our, the results might not be immediately revealed. Another theologian puts it this way. Our petitions are granted at once, and the results of the granting are perceived in the future. And I've experienced this firsthand. Uh, I was at a different church, and I believe that God had called me to that church. And uh, for many different reasons, I was basically saying, God, uncall me to this church because I wanted to, to, to leave. And um, God ended up granting that uh, and said, the next place that you serve will be at Ridgewood Church. And I remember thinking to myself, that doesn't make any sense because they don't have any openings. They, they already have two people who are in that position. And so um, 
instead of trusting and being patient and waiting, uh, I started to go and apply at other positions, open positions. And so uh, the short version of this is simply I got very frustrated. I got very angry at God because I felt that God has called me to student ministry. He should at least provide me an opportunity to serve in student ministry. And, um, and, and clearly God kept closing the door on different opportunities. And so I even started to question my call to ministry. I and started to look at other uh, professions and careers and said, okay, well, I'm clearly not called to student ministry. And so I started going to try to get other jobs. And same thing happened. The door would close. Even times when it sounded like things were in the bag, he would close the door on it. And so I got extremely frustrated. I got extremely angry with God. And I led to a lot of disappointment. And after the very two frustrating years with God, uh, he affirmed my call to ministry. He affirmed that the next place that I would serve is Ridgewood. But looking back on it, there were things that needed to come to the surface. And part of his will was the fact that I needed to work at Office Max and that my pride and my entitlement, because God doesn't owe me a job, and those things surfaced to, or came to the surface where we could deal with those and remove those. And so he granted my request, but it wasn't part of his will for me to go and serve at Ridgewood at that moment and that there were things in my life that needed to be dealt with. Um, Romans 8:26 and 27 says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I think of it like this. And partially because I am a father of toddlers and a 10-year-old or a 10-month-old, um, a little kid who coming and just basically saying what they want, and God is kind of sitting there interpreting, or the Holy Spirit is interpreting. Uh, we were at the Fourth of July festival in Chanhassen, and my my two kids. Uh, if you want to put up the picture, Justin. Uh, so these are them, Kirby and Millie. Uh, so they're having the time of their life, right? But they are just super tired. They're whining and complaining. They want cotton candy. They want to go on a roller coaster. Kirby wants me to pay $5 so he can pick up a duck so he can try to win some prize. And I'm sitting there looking at him and be like, really what you want, what you need is a nap. That's what you need. You need to go home and sleep. Um, And I think that that's kind of the case with the Holy Spirit is he intercedes on our behalf when we're praying not according to God's will. Um, And sometimes we just need to learn from the book of Job. And the book of Job uh, a lot of things happen to Job, and he kind of is like, God, what the heck? Why would you do this? And then verse, uh, chapters 38 through 41, God speaks, and uh, he basically lays the hammer down on Job and basically says, who do you think you are? Like, I, where were you when I created everything and how I hold everything in place, right? And Job is basically just sitting there as God is just laying it down. And it's basically he's dropping the mic on Job, and basically just simply saying, you are so small in comparison to me. You are so tiny to the majesty and the might that I am that you have no idea what's going on, that our perception of reality is so limited compared to God, and that basically that he doesn't owe us an, he doesn't owe us an explanation, and that we can think that we might know the better path or this makes a lot more sense, but we have no idea what's going on. Um, and so I know that that's kind of hard for people to hear, especially if you're in that situation where you feel like God is silent or God is not granting your, your prayer. 
And, and so I want to encourage you that I know that it hurts and, it, and I've been there, but encourage you that if you're praying according to his will, that he hears you and that he will grant that and that you just need to be patient and you need to wait. Um, but maybe there's things that need to be rooted out of your life. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's entitlement or pride or something else. Learn from my example that if you go about it on your own, that it's only going to lead to more disappointment. It's only going to lead to more frustration. It's only going to lead to more hurt. Um, And that ultimately that God is a good God and that he will grant it. But we need to stay and trust in in the Lord. Um, So believe it or not, uh, we're about to get to the fun part of this passage. Um, So if we continue in verses 16 through 17, I want you to just kind of remember the context of of the verses. So John was going and testifying about um, Jesus as the Son of God, uh, that belief in him will lead to eternal life and salvation, and that salvation brings about the Spirit, which is evidence of our salvation, and that because we have the Spirit and we are confident in that, that we can pray and that he hears us and he grants those requests. So that's the context. So here we go, verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Before I get to my third point, and also address what's probably on everyone's mind, which is, what is the sin that leads to death? Uh, Romans 6.23 is, the wages of sin is death. So yes, we have that. And that there was a physical element to this where Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and they physically died. And so we're not talking about physical death. We're talking about a spiritual death. Um, And so one of the things that we kind of have, I believe that the original audience would have just known what this meant. Um, And so we don't have that benefit. One of the benefits that we do have is that we have scripture in front of us. And so, but we need to work a little bit harder to try to understand the context and the culture of which the original author was writing in. And so Um, trying to get an understanding, and so we have to work a little bit harder. But um, Matthew 12 tells a story where the Pharisees were uh, basically watching Jesus perform a great work. He's doing a miracle, and they basically blame it, or they give the credit to a demon called Belshazzar. And Jesus tells us this was actually blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because it was a rejection, an open-eyed rejection of known truth. And basically saying that they witnessed God do a miracle in front of them, and their hearts were so hardened to the point and not open to God that they explained it as the work of the devil. And, and that's kind of the idea that John has in mind, because he would have been there for that. He would have seen that, the walking around with, with Jesus. But he's talking about the sin that leads to death is the total rejection of Jesus Christ. And that it's a hardening of the heart to the point of no return. That if they... It's one of those things that where they have an open-eyed rejection of Jesus. And so he's talking about in verse 6 through 12, right? He's testifying that God, that Jesus is the Son of God. And it's that open rejection of that, that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, we're told, uh, I think Susie preached on it, but we're told in chapter 2, 19, that there were people who left them, left their group. And John talks about that that they were not of us, because if they were of us, they would have continued to stay with us. And so 
one of the questions that comes to mind, can a true believer commit the sin that leads to death? And the answer is no. That John is very clear on that, that if they would have stayed, then if they were true believers, they would have stayed among them. Um, and so, uh, which is, so this leads me to my third point, because the, the sin that leads to death is not the main focus. I believe it's kind of an under-the-breath statement of just kind of like, well, you could pray, like, you shouldn't really waste your time praying for them because what you should be doing as a believer abiding in Christ is that if you have a salvation that transforms because you'll be praying for brothers and sisters who are trapped in sin and the sin that does not lead to death, which is basically any other sin besides open rejection of Christ. And so um, when you, the idea behind this passage is that when a Christian or a, a believer sees someone in sin, their initial reaction is to, is to pray for that person and to pray for deliverance. And it's not that John's writing that, oh, they should or they could, but it's that they will. And that if you are really in a part of a salvation that transforms, that you're going to be getting to a point where all of a sudden you start seeing people in sin, that you're going to start praying for them. And that, is kind of, that was really convicting to me because when I was doing this passage, um, I'm really good about praying for my family and praying for my friends and praying for the students in the ministry, but I'm not very good about praying for people in sin. And so I'm going to list out a couple things and see kind of where you stand up for that or stand how you've been doing. And so a, couple, a month ago the, with the Pride Parade, how many, you know, were you there praying for God to work in their life or were you more busy about praying or writing some kind of snarky comment on social media? Uh, what about our, our leaders of the country, whether Republican or Democrat, if they go against your eth- or ethical or moral compass, are you praying for them? Or are you more just kind of like God will judge them? Um, what about um, the social justice groups of today, right? Black lives matter, all lives matter, blue lives matter, middle school lives matter. All they want is just good food at a reasonable price. That's all middle school lives matter wants. Um, but on a, back to the serious, are you, but are you praying that the hatred and the malice and the, and the racism subside? Are you praying that compassion and love is shown to them? Or are you praying that, that judgment's going to come upon them? Um, are you praying for the churches around that have different beliefs than us? Are you praying that God will reveal that to them, that they can come to a, a, a real, um, if they're not, to a point where they're kind of following a tradition that's different? Are you praying... Um, instead of filling this world with hate and judgment, you know, on social media and our, and our media and that we're surrounded with, but what if we actually fill the spiritual realm with prayers of deliverance of sin and reconciliation? What if our, our community, our mission statement here is making, community, or making Jesus known through community impact? What if we actually were committed to doing that by lifting up this community and we made a community impact because we were praying for this community and we know that if we're asking according of his will that he will grant those prayers? When was the last time you prayed for someone who sinned against you? Because now we're bringing it a little bit personal, right? Where someone has an offense and instead of praying just, God, help them see that they were wrong and that I was right, but actually praying for for both you and them, that's heart of reconciliation, right? That I know that there are people in here who are, har- who are harboring bitterness and have unforgiveness towards another person. And that made clear in Mark 11 that that impacts your relationship, that impacts your prayer life, 
And that in, in, it is impossible for you to be aligning yourself with God's will because God's will is for reconciliation and it is for forgiveness. And so really seeking and praying, and it's not necessarily about who's right, but it's about the kingdom and it's about bringing unity to the church and bringing unity to your relationships. Um, and so as we continue on uh, in verses 18 through 21, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And my fourth point is this. You may know that you have a salvation that transforms because you are not held in the bondage of sin. Uh, this has been a common theme throughout the book of 1 John, um, and that is a true believer is not, does not continue in a habitual sin lifestyle. Um, and the reason for this is we know in 18 that we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So we've got to clean up this a little bit. Uh, the English language kind of fails us. Um, and so everyone who is born of God, that is the believer, uh, and then does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God, that is Jesus. And so if you look at the original Greek, uh, John switches the tenses there. And he switches to a tense which ind- uh, indicates that there's a historical event. And so it's a past tense um, kind of uh, tense. And so... That's how, where we get that idea that it is Jesus who protects the evil one, uh, protects us from the evil one. And so this is important because it's, it's found in other places in Scripture, including two other books that John writes, which is it's found in his Gospel, and it's also found in Revelation, that Jesus protects us from the evil one. And so um, this doesn't mean that we're not spiritually attacked. We know this from experience, that we've experienced spiritual attack, but also we're told to put on our armor of God. Right, our helmet of salvation, our breastplate of righteousness, our belt of truth, our gospel, our shoes of peace, our shield of faith, and our sword of the spirit. Right? We're told. Why? Because we're in a spiritual battle and there will be spiritual attacks. So that's not what he's talking about. But what he's talking about is that we're not held in bondage. And I kind of think of like a mummy where they're just wrapped and wrapped and wrapped and wrapped. Because Hebrews 12 tells us that the sin that so easily entangles, and that's kind of where I get that idea from, that Jesus comes in with like a giant shears and just frees you from that. And that if we're abiding in Christ, if we're staying in Christ, that Satan cannot hold you in bondage. He cannot touch you. Um, And this idea that if you are uh, separated from Christ or if you don't have Christ, verse 19 kind of tells us about that, that Satan has power over you. And if you as a believer give Satan permission or if you... I mean, not that we're like, hey, Satan, have power over me. But if you're not abiding in Christ, if you're not allowing Christ to reign in your life, then Satan, that gives Satan a foothold to really hold you in bondage. And so um, that's one of the evidences that we have is that we are not, we are freed from our bondage of sin, that we can break free of this and really focus in on Christ being the one who sets us free. Um, And then continuing in verse 20, This is, as we're kind of closing this, John uh, really emphasizes that you may know with head knowledge and the understanding, but then you can also experience this. And and so he changes 
the actual word for know. He changes it to a completely different word, which has the, the meaning of experience. And so that's where we kind of get this idea that we know because God has testified. He's given us evidence that we can look at with the water and the blood, and then we can experience it because we have the spirit that lives in us that we uh, know and we have confidence that he hears our prayers and he grants us prayers. And so we see answered prayer. That's evidence of the salvation, the transformation. We know that um, he doesn't hold us in bondage of sin, and so we can have that freedom there. And then it closes with the grand finale in verse 21, where it says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So it feels kind of like the grand finale at the 4th of July fireworks, where I was kind of left going like, well, I guess we're done, um, and kind of going on. But John, really, he's summarizing it and basically saying that uh, in reject what is false, right? An idol or false teachers or something that is replacing the rightful place of Christ and embrace what is true. And what is true is that God has testified that Jesus is the Son of God, and if we abide in him, we will have a salvation we can experience now because it transforms us. Um, in a little bit, the, the worship band is going to come up and they're going to play a song. And so I hope that the Spirit has really been moving in your heart. There's been a lot in this passage that we've covered and that John really wants you to know that you are saved and that uh, we have evidence of that salvation. And so uh, there could be some of you who are sitting there and be like, I don't even know what he's talking about, the Spirit that he's talking about that testifies in your heart. If you've never heard or have not had that spirit as evidence to you, then I encourage you to come and talk to someone about that. And maybe the fact that today is the day where you actually give your life to Christ, where you uh, submit to Christ and believe that he is the one who paid the price for your sins and that his death and resurrection has provided a way for you to be reconciled back and that because of that, one of the things that happens is the Spirit comes into your life and that you will have that Spirit testifying. Or maybe today you're stuck in bondage of sin and you're being convicted and you have that nudge from the Spirit of saying, today's the day that you fully give yourself to Christ, that you fully let Christ reign, and that even in that area where that darkest secret, where you've been kind of holding on, whether it's you know, pornography or whether it's something else that's just holding grip on your life, that you let that go and just kind of give it to Christ because he can reign and he can free you from that. You don't need to be held in sin, and Satan doesn't have the authority to hold you in it as a believer. Um, or maybe you've been convicted of unforgiveness, that there's unforgiveness or you're harboring bitterness towards another person, and that that's been impacting your relationship with Christ. Maybe it's been robbing the joy of your salvation. Maybe it's uh, or that you're not having your prayers heard. Um, or maybe, like me, this is what really convicted me, was the fact that I was not going to spiritual battle for my brothers and sisters in sin, and that I was not on my knees praying for them. And so maybe if any of this is convicting you, I would encourage you to take a step forward and to come on down as the worship band comes up to lead uh, us in a closing song. There's going to be people up here that you can talk to, um, you can feel free to talk to, or maybe just taking the literal step in your relationship with Christ, where you're coming forward before God and just simply saying, God, have your way within me and, and, help, and just allow you to give that to Christ. And so the worship band is going to lead us in a song.